Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. Be looking at the last part of that uh, passage. John chapter 4, begin with verse 43 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a Roman official, or royal official, whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Galilee into, in, from, out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is a second, again a second sign that Jesus performed when he came out of Judea into Galilee. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, we see from your word many different things. Lord, we see a man who was desperate. Desperate for the need of his child. And Lord, his faith was very small at first. But Lord, as we see his faith progress, help us to realize that that is the path that many people come to salvation. Lord, as we've been sharing that seeds must be planted before a harvest is reaped. Lord, we see in this man that a seed has been planted. And Lord, it has to mature and finally reap a harvest. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to see this process so that we can be a part of that process and in leading others to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. Lord, guide us in our understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a lot of people use the phrase, seeing is believing. We've all probably said that somewhere along the way, haven't we? Seeing is believing. And in most circumstances, it's a correct way of saying things. You know, a lot of things, people will say that something will happen or something could happen or I can make this happen. And we say, well, seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. And so in in most things in the world, it's probably a pretty good way of thinking about things. Seeing truly is believing. Realizing that, you know, I don't know for a fact that it's going to happen just because somebody said it. But when we get into spiritual things, we see a totally different picture. What we see is that the Bible tells us that faith is seen without believing. Actually, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now think about that for a second. 
if, if we got to get away from the seeing is believing motto when it comes to spiritual things. Because God has a different way for us to approach Him. He wants us to approach Him through faith. Believing even without seeing. How many of y'all believe that there's a heaven? Hopefully all of us, right? Have you seen it? But the Bible promises it. Faith is believing what is not yet seen. Salvation is an act of faith. How do we know that our sins are forgiven? How do we know that we have inherited this gift of eternal life with God? Seeing not believing because we've not seen it. It is faith. Believing in that which is not yet seen. So Jesus is dealing with a situation where the people are basically telling him, I'll believe it when I see it. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus and even later his apostles did so many miracles, or as John uses the term, signs. These are signs of the power and the authority that these men, especially Jesus, have in God. God is in them, working through them to do these things. Now, why were there so many miracles or signs in the biblical days? Well, mainly it was an act of proving the power of God in these people. It showed that they had the authority of God in their ministry. Why do we not see as many miracles today? Now, folks, I'll be honest with you, there are still miracles being done today. But we don't always see miracles being done. Why? Well, we have enough evidence from what we have learned through the Scriptures, from what we have seen in our own lives, the power of God working in us and through us, to know that there is a God. And the people in our world today, there is enough evidence already for them to simply believe by faith. But yet God still, from time to time, does work miracles. And he does it in his own way for his own will to take place. But we look and we see that the people in Galilee and really the people in Jesus' day were kind of looking at Jesus as a phenomenon. You know, he could do something that most people could not do. And now Jesus didn't work magic, but it's almost kind of like a David Copperfield type thing. You know, people are flocked to a magician to see these weird things that they can do, uh, illusions that they can perform that just astounds the mind. Does that mean that people are flocking to bow down before David Copperfield or that they're allowing his, his magical illusions to, to affect their lives? No. And that's really the situation that Jesus found himself in. God had used him to do miracles or signs to show the power and the authority that he had from God. And yet, many people were using it as kind of a, you know, I like seeing these tricks being done. It, it's really neat to see these things happening. And it's more entertainment, more of a curiosity than it is because you do this, I believe that you're the Son of God. And so, unfortunately, that's kind of the way a lot of our world is today as well. But verses 43 and 44 basically share with us that Jesus considered himself uh, a prophet without honor in his own home. He had left out of uh, uh, Sychar, where he spent a couple of days with the people of Samaria there. He led many of those people to Christ. He, he encouraged his disciples to see the, the fields that were white unto harvest, the people who were coming out of the town to him to hear about this 
this gift that he had to, to know all things about this woman. At first, they believed only because of the woman's testimony. Then, after hearing Jesus personally, they said, Now we believe in him because of what we have heard from him. So he had spent a few days in Sychar, and now he is traveling further north, out of Samaria, into the area of Galilee. Now, Jesus basically grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee. He is now coming into the town of Canaan. Nazareth is about four miles south of Canaan. So we're talking about the same general vicinity. We also hear about a, a royal official whose son is about to die. He is in Capernaum. From Nazareth, you go about four miles north to get to Canaan. From Canaan, you go kind of north, north, uh, uh, I mean, east, northeast to get to Capernaum, probably about 16 to 18 miles. So the distance between where Jesus grew up and even where this child is that's, that's deathly sick is about 20 miles. Now, folks, in an area like that, people know each other. Just think, 20 miles is not that far. That far. And it's not nearly as populated as uh, people might think. And so Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Most people knew him as what? The son of a carpenter. That's all they knew Jesus as. Now, all of a sudden, when he gets 30 years old, he is proclaiming to be the Messiah. He comes down to John the Baptist at the Jordan River. He's baptized. The Spirit of God is evident in his life as it comes down upon him in the form of a dove. And we see from that moment forward, his earthly ministry begins. From that period forward, he is struggling for people to quit seeing him as this kid in the neighborhood, this son of a carpenter, and now to see him as God the Son. A huge step in people's minds. Now, I remember growing up in church where my parents were members until they passed away. And after becoming a pastor, I come back and, you know, some of these ladies say, I remember changing your diaper and things like this. You know, it's kind of humbling, you know, they say, you know, who are you to tell me how I ought to live, in other words? I think Jesus probably faced that in his ministry. All these people in, in Galilee remembered, if they even knew him, they remembered him as just a simple child of a carpenter. He learned a carpenter trade, and if they knew much about him, that's really probably all that they knew about him. And now he's able to do these miraculous signs. And they're struggling to, to understand who has he become? Who is he claiming to be now? So Jesus was really struggling with this no matter where he was, whether he was in Jerusalem. Uh, actually, he probably had the most honor in Samaria where he just left because all the people came out wondering about him and listened to him and accepted what he said. And so now we look and we see that Jesus has come into Galilee He's probably struggling with people, especially this early in his earthly ministry. And now he arrives in Canaan again. Cana is just a little town. He had been there once before. He had attended a wedding. His mother said, they have run out of wine. That is a, a, a social taboo. You don't do that. Jesus, take care of this. And, and he did. He told the servants to get the water pots. And, and he said, draw some out of there and take it to the uh, the cupbearer, the wine taster, and he, he basically said, this is the best wine we've had. And so Jesus had turned simple water into wine at the wedding. 
Now he's back in the same place. And now we see that they're receiving him somewhat warmly. And why are they receiving him warmly? Well, one of the reasons probably is is that those who attended the, the wedding feast had found out probably later that Jesus had turned three huge water uh, barrels into wine. And so they were amazed at his ability to do that. But it also says that they had seen what he had done in Jerusalem. Now, why were the people in Galilee in Jerusalem? Well, they went there for the Passover. Any Jewish person was really required, if at all possible, to attend the major feast in Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, and you just keep on going. And so they had been good Jews. They had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And while they were there, they saw Jesus doing some unique things. If you did go back to John chapter 2, you find that Jesus went into the temple and cleansed the temple. Wow. Here's just a man that they knew as a, as a carpenter's son, cleansing the temple and doing it with great authority. But then it says later on in that same chapter, John chapter 2, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. So while Jesus was in Jerusalem after he cleansed the temple, he was doing various signs. We don't have a record of those signs, but we we know that he was doing miraculous things even in Jerusalem. And these people, these Jewish people from Galilee, had been in Jerusalem during that time, had to have witnessed personally firsthand what Jesus had done. And so they welcomed him warmly because of what they had seen there, because of what they had witnessed there in Cana with him turning water into wine. And so now we move on and we find this one man that comes to Jesus. Jesus is confronted by a desperate father. Look at verses 46, the last part of that through 47. Last part 46. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, this man is described as a royal official. What does that mean? Well, he was in the area of Galilee. Now, this is after the time of Herod the Great's death. When Herod the Great died, his sons basically divided his his territory of the, he was the king of the Jews, this Jewish territory, he had, they had basically divided up into what they call tetrarchs. It basically means that each son had a different area that they ruled over. This was more than likely Herod Antipas, which was one of the sons of Herod the Great, and he was over the area of Galilee. So Herod, the, Herod Antipas had his own cabinet, and so this was a royal official of that cabinet, which means he probably had uh, great clout, great uh, power and prestige. In other words, he's probably one of these kind of guys that could snap his fingers and say what he wanted done, and it would probably get done. But none of that matters anymore. It doesn't matter what kind of position in society, what kind of position in the government this man has. He has a son at the point of death, and he is desperate. He has forgotten all about his clout and his power in the city. And he's pleading for help. And he has heard about Jesus. Whether he had 
whether he was even a Jew, we really don't know. Whether he had gone to Jerusalem and had seen these works and miracles or had just heard about them, we really don't know. But what we do assume is that he has heard that Jesus has the ability to do miracles or signs. And so he comes to Jesus and he implores him, he begs him, Lord, come down to Capernaum and heal my son. He is at the point of death. Now, where is this in the stages of salvation? We've always heard there's no atheists in foxholes. When really bad situations happen, people tend to pray to whatever they believe that there is as a God. And they'll usually use some probably non-spiritual language. Big man up there, I need your help or something like this. They don't even know how to pray. But they're desperate and they're calling out for some power other than themselves to help them. To me, that's what this man is doing. He's coming to Jesus. He doesn't really know the source of his power. He does not know even how to pray. He is desperate and he sees this man who has shown that he can do miraculous works. He's saying, he's really my only hope. We have called other people, probably other doctors and whoever else, elders to come in and to to see if they can help my son. He's almost at the point of death and I'm desperate. Jesus, you're my only hope. Will you please, I beg you, please, come to Capernaum and heal my son. Can you hear the heartbreak in this man? He's not, he's not saying, Jesus, I, I, I'm a royal official. You've got to do what I told you to do. He's begging. He's pleading. Will you please come? He, his clout is gone. He's just a humble man begging for help. And so Jesus responds, and it's probably not the response this man wanted to hear. Probably not the response many of us want to hear. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, and then he actually is saying it to the people around him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And so Jesus is really addressing the problem. People are saying, we really won't even think about believing in who you may claim to be unless we see you doing some miraculous signs. And if you understand, that's really where a lot of our world is today. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, I might believe that there's a God if I could see some fantastic miracle? Well, they fail to realize that there's miracles happening around them each and every day. Every time a child is born is a miracle of birth. There's no way that you can explain how how all this takes place. Scientists keep saying, "Well, it's it's you know all these things you know growing and multiplying and everything." How does that happen, though? It doesn't just happen because there's nothing else to do but for it to happen. You know, for an atheist to say everything was created out of nothing, how did that happen? Well, a bunch of hydrogen molecules collided together and had a big bang, and oh, here we are. Folks, how do you get what we have out of chaos? It doesn't happen that way. To see how the sun continues to spin on its axis for however long it's been spinning, evidenced by the sun rises and the sun sets, and realize there's no evidence that it's ever going to stop. 
to, to look at the human body and the incredible way it's made up and not believe that there is a divine creator. But that's really where a lot of people are. They, they say, well, if, if I saw some unexplainable thing happen, I would believe. Well, folks, there's a lot of unexplainable things that happen all the time. And in today's world, with all the computer-generated stuff, even then you couldn't hardly believe what you see. But look at verse 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's not affected by what Jesus said. He, he just kind of blows us off and says, You may have a point, but the only thing that I care about is my son. That's the only thing that I care about. Yes, I'm looking for a miracle. You're really the only one around here that it seems to be able to do a miracle. Whether or not what you just said is right or not, which it is, it really doesn't matter to me. The only thing I want is for you to heal my son. He's at the point of death. Now, a couple things we don't see here is, is a true faith. As Jesus' earthly ministry progresses, he will do many more miracles and signs. This man was believing that Jesus had to be present with his son, probably to actually lay hands on him for him to be healed. Geographically, he had had him bound to having to be there. He also had no clue that Jesus might have the power to raise him from the dead if he did die. Jesus did both of those things, healing from a distance and raising the dead on more than one occasion. So we look and we see that this man had maybe taken one extra little bitty step towards faith. He was believing that Jesus might have the power in some form or fashion if he came personally and tried to heal his son. Folks, that's that, just getting past that tinge of faith and saying, you know, well, I've heard enough about you. I, I'm starting to believe that you might have the power to do what, what we're trying to do here. And then the first part of verse 50, we see a miracle taking place. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Now, you think that's what the man really wanted to hear? Just go on. I don't think Jesus said it that way. I think he said, Go. Your son's okay. Your son lives. It's been taken care of. Here's the thing that we might struggle with. Last part of that verse says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. He didn't say, but, 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 but Jesus, I won't believe what you just said unless you come and heal my son personally. He doesn't say that. He's taken another step of faith. He's not only heard that Jesus can do it, but Jesus just said, I just did it. Whether it's in desperation that this man is grasping at, tra- at straws, trying to believe that, that what Jesus just said was the truth, We weren't there, we really don't know, but the Bible says that the man believed the words of Jesus and he began his way off. Now, as people go through the steps of salvation, there's that twinge where they come to a point where they think maybe there is a God out there. Then they come to where they have heard something about the gospel and they may think, you know, yeah, maybe I need it, maybe I don't. 
could that gospel actually save me? And even if it does, do I even want it? And now the gospel is being presented again, and there's this strong tug. I believe I need this, but I'm, am I willing to let it truly transform my life? Am I really willing to surrender to this idea that someone else has power and authority over me? I don't think this man's there yet, but he's getting there. And so we see that he's taken this next step of faith. He believes the word of God, or of Jesus, and he starts off. Now, we don't know the time frame. John was written much later than the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the time frames were Jewish time frames, that the hours began at 6 in the morning, and so if you were talking about the third hour, you'd be talking about 9 o'clock in the morning. If you're talking about the seventh hour, you'd be talking about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Some people claim that John writes from the Jewish perspective. Some say he writes from the Roman perspective. The Roman perspective would be the midnight to midnight. And usually it would be the seventh hour of the morning or the seventh hour of the evening. And normally it would be expressed one way or the other. What we find out is that this man begins on his way somewhere. We don't know what time he leaves. We don't know if it was the seventh hour of the Jewish time frame where it would be one o'clock in the afternoon and he begins his journey and maybe can't make it all the way to Capernaum because Capernaum is about 18, 16 to 18 miles away. And walking, usually take, you can usually cover about 20 miles in a day, which is probably about an 8 to 10 hour walk, which is probably about 2 miles per hour. So we're talking about 8, eight hours. Is he going to walk after it gets dark? If he, if he leaves at 1 o'clock, that's only five hours of walking time. Probably not enough time to get to Capernaum. If it's the seventh hour of Roman time, 7 o'clock at night, he's not even leaving town until the first light the next day. Either way, he begins his journey towards Capernaum, and somewhere along the way, his servants are coming back from Capernaum to find him, to give him the great news that his son lives. When they meet up together, he says... When was it that my son began getting better? Notice those words, began to get better. And they said, about the seventh hour yesterday, his fever left him. He didn't just start getting better, he was healed. So we see that for whatever reason, it's the next day before this Roman, uh, this royal official finds out that his son truly was healed. At first, he just thought, well, he started getting better, and now we know he's going to be able to live. That was just that extra little step of faith, believing that Jesus could heal him, but maybe not all at once. Maybe he would just start getting better and keep getting better and better and better, and then would be restored to health. But when his servants come and find him, they say, no, not just getting better. The fever's left him. He's healed. He is, he's good. He's alive. He's ready for you to come home. Well, notice what takes place now. The evidence revealed or realized. Verse 51 and following. As he was now going down, the slaves met him, saying that his son was living. He inquired about the hour. They said yesterday at 7 o'clock. And then verse 53. 
So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And here's the important part. And he himself believed and his whole household. That word believe there seems to have a more powerful meaning behind it. It was not quite as um, more powerful than what we saw in verse 50 where it says, the man believed the word of God. It says he himself believed. That truly means that he has says, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has the power to heal, that he is proving the power and authority that he claims in his life. I now believe he is Messiah. Now, we don't see all those words there, but the evidence is there. Why? What does he do next? He shares this news, this gospel, this message of salvation with his entire family, and they too believe. Folks, that's the, that's the picture of a transformation that took place in his life. It wasn't any more that he was just hoping and wishing and thinking that maybe this man could keep my son from dying. Now he has evidence, not only that he could keep him from dying, but he could heal him completely. And he saw the evidence that Jesus has deity, power of God, God with us there. You always wonder, could a, a royal official like this, who had so much power and authority in his own life, how hard it might be for him to surrender to the power and authority of Christ? I think that's one of the things that we struggle with in our world today. There are so many people that, that believe that they already have enough power and authority in their life that they don't need God they don't need salvation. They have everything taken care of in their life. They're going along. They've, they've got plenty of stuff for themselves. They're happy with the way their life is going. they got money in the bank. They've got a nice home. they got family. Why do they need anything else, even God? Sometimes a person like that has to face a tragedy to realize I don't have it all figured out. I don't have power over everything. I cannot control everything in life. I need somebody who can. I need to call on somebody who has greater power and authority than I do. That's what took place with this royal official. He probably had life the way he wanted it. And then all of a sudden his son is at the point of death. And he becomes desperate. All of his wealth, all of his power and authority and prestige just went out the door. It meant absolutely nothing to him anymore. He knew he needed some power other than himself. That's a part of coming to salvation. It's really realizing that we have very limited power and authority. We can control certain things in our lives, but there's always something that's going to trip us up. There's always going to be some kind of tragedy that comes our way that we cannot control. And we come to that realization, I need help. That's where this man is. I need help. And that was that first step of salvation. Then when Jesus said, go, your son lives, he took that next step, maybe just hopefully believing that this was true. But he took that step of faith. I'm starting to head home. I'm going to find out for myself, is he truly healed? And then when the Servants came and says, the fever left him. 
7 o'clock yesterday, at the exact time that Jesus said, Go, your son lives. Then he realized that's the power greater than all powers I've ever met. He is worthy for me to give my life to. Now, we don't see the full picture of salvation in the story. We have to assume that these things happen. But as I shared with you, we had that beginning stage, a twinge of faith, where you see some evidence of a creator. You say, maybe there is a God. And then you're exposed to the gospel, and you start wondering, is that even for me? Do I even want that? And then another seed's planted. You're exposed to the gospel in a way that it confronts your sinfulness. And you realize, I believe that I need this, but am I willing to surrender my life and allow this power to be in control of my life? Almost there, but not quite. Then that next step, realizing I'm condemned in my sinfulness. I know what the penalty of my sin is. I know my need to confess my sins, to receive the forgiveness of an almighty God. I believe that through Jesus, that he died for my sins, that he is my way of salvation, and I surrender my life to his lordship. That's when you get to the final step, the true gift of salvation. All the others are just steps leading up to it. A lot of people come to that point where I believe there's a God, so that makes me good enough to go to heaven. Or I believe that there's a God that can do mighty works. That's good enough, right? Well, I believe that there's a historical man named Jesus who did some crazy things back then. And he spoke with great authority. And he shows us how we ought to live. I'm just going to try to model myself after how he taught us how to live. That should get me into heaven. That's what the man said. He believed the word of Jesus. Didn't believe in Jesus, but he believed the word of Jesus. And then he came to believe Jesus, not just his word. He believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was there to save him from his sins. Now, Jesus had not yet died for his sins, but that was still coming. But Jesus was proclaiming, even to that Samaritan woman, I am him, the Messiah. No no way that you can take away that evidence. Jesus had already proven himself to this man and to the people around him. But we have to do like this man. We have to come to a time in our hearts and lives where we've made all the steps. we finally come to the point I'm condemned to my sins. I need a Savior, and there's only one who can save me. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. He died to save me so that I could have eternal life. I place my faith in Him, and I surrender to His Lordship over my life. Where are you in the steps of salvation? Are you just thinking there's a God? That's enough. Are you thinking that there's a historical Jesus that showed you how to live? And if you try to live a good, 
godly life, that's enough? Have you come under conviction that you're a sinner and that, well, maybe if I just do better, I'll be okay? Or have you come to the point in your life where you know that because of any sin in your life, you deserve eternal death, total eternal separation from God, and that the only way to overcome that is to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, receiving what he did on the cross for your gift of salvation? I don't know where you are in your steps of salvation. Unless you're to the final point where you have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, receiving His gift of salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection, you're not there. Think about the people around you. Family members, co-workers, neighbors. Where are they in their spiritual walk? Where are they in their steps of salvation? Have they even gotten the twinge that there is a God? Have they heard the gospel enough where they feel maybe convicted, but they're not ready to surrender their life? I shared last week, it usually takes multiple people planting seeds in a person's life before true salvation comes. There's no telling how many seeds have already been planted in the people's lives that you come in contact with. It may just be that that one extra seed that you can plant will get them to that point of true salvation. Or maybe you're just getting them to that next step where they're closer and needing another seed planted. Don't second guess God. Don't say, well, I've, I've shared salvation. I've shared their need for confession of their sins before. And nobody ever prays that prayer of salvation. Well, you're just not a reaper, you're a sower. You're simply sowing the seeds of salvation. Put the rest in God's hands. Trust Him to continue to work in that person's life, to keep drawing them to that point where they give their life to Christ. We never know, we never know what seeds we plant might bring fruit later. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, This man was desperate. He could no longer depend on his own clout, his own power and authority to get things done the way he wanted to. He needed a miracle. Lord, you provided that miracle. A miracle that enabled him to believe. Lord, you called upon us to accept that same fact without a miracle. At least not a miracle like that in our lives. The miracle we look at is the miracle that happened on the cross. That a sinless man put all the sins of the world upon himself, died for the penalty of those sins, died in our place, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day to prove that he has the miraculous power over the penalty of sin, which is death and the power to give us salvation and eternal life. That's the miracle of salvation. Help us, Lord, to share that miracle with people around us, not worrying about whether they come to faith at that moment or whether it's just a seed being planted. Help us, Lord, just be a part of that process. Guide us in seeing the people that need to hear that most. And, Lord, just speak through us that we may be found faithful in sharing your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.